Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code HANGUP. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 16th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Spurs' amazing NBA Finals route, what their win over the Miami Heat says about team building and pro basketball, the aesthetics of their on-court play, and the style of irascible no who's irascible coach greg popovich oh no sensible sensible (laughs) congenial impolite but sensible coach greg popovich we'll then discuss the opening weekend of the 2014 world cup in brazil in which goals were plentiful and no game ended in a draw the soccer trolls not having not having a good opening weekend of the world cup uh, finally, we'll be joined by Steve Berkowitz of USA Today. He'll walk us through the Ed O'Bannon class action antitrust trial and explain whether it has the potential to upend college sports. 
Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Ole, ole, ole. You're doing your little Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic <clears throat> dance that you always do when I'm reading the That's titles of your book. World Cup Samba. Arriba. Uh, I don't have a gun or a banner to protest, though. Well, maybe by the end of the show, we can Actually, get, get you a bed sheet. We can get you a bed the sheet. Police have the guns. The protesters do not have the guns. Uh, with us in New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of the daily podcast "The Gist" with Mike Pesca. How is your gun and banner situation in the New York studio, Mike? I would like to uh, do this entire show as Greg Popovich. So, any any impertinent questions, I will just be terse with. How's my gun and banner? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> gun banner? Yeah. Turnovers. Question. Next next question. Turnovers. Uh, we're recording this before the USA Ghana match, so great win or a horrible loss or or draw, indifferent draw, indifferent draw. It's like kissing my co-host. Um, the ha- <laughs> <laughs> do you want to demonstrate now, with your sister. We're going to have a hang up and listen extra podcast via our friends at the Howler that will cover the game. Um, so if you subscribe to the Hang Up and Listen feed in your favorite podcast program. You will be able to get that on Tuesday to be right on the cusp of the breaking news about USA and Ghana. I'm also encourage you to subscribe to Slate Plus. You can get extra hang up and listen segments, such as on today's episode. Um, you can do that at slate.com slash hang up plus. And let us now talk about the NBA finals. We were sitting in these very chairs last week. Would these chairs have, have imagined that after the finals were tied one-to-one, the Spurs would win the next three games by 19, 21, and 17 points. San Antonio beat Miami by a combined 70 points, the largest margin in NBA Finals history. They did it with contributions from uh, the big old three of Duncan, Ginobili, and Parker, uh, your big men, Splitter and Diaw, shooters Patty Mills and Danny Green, and the 22-year-old Finals MVP Kawhi Leonard, who ESPN's Jalen Rose, I think, aptly compared to Scottie Pippen. Very Pippen-like series. Um, Adam Silver, during the trophy presentation, said of the Spurs, you showed the world how beautiful this game is. And that was a comment that so many people were making about the beauty of the Spurs' performance. Did did it make you weep, Mike, the beauty? No. I mean, <laughs> I thought it was well executed. This is ridiculous, the beauty of the Spurs. They passed a lot. And sometimes they didn't. Sometimes Ginobili just puts his head down and has a good drive. Whenever an NBA ex- – okay, except for that era of, like, bully basketball and the Knicks and so forth. Whenever NBA teams do well, a beautiful high-arcing shot of lovely trajectory splashes down in the bottom of the net or someone finds an open man. So, you know, the winning team usually plays really nice basketball. I think it was more of – they made the uh, they made the Heat look ugly on offense and look and look really uh, out of it on offense. Yeah, their offense was great and they did pass a lot. And passing, I guess, means beautiful. Although I don't know why driving and making a crazy shot like Ginobili would sometimes do doesn't make beautiful. I just think it was, you know, I just was going. I was trying to read all these articles. Like, how did they do this? How did this happen? I know what we're seeing. I know we saw many more passes than the Heat seemed to be able to account for or defend against that led to 20 point blowouts that was it it just seems like there was some secret that maybe some popovichologist will one day figure out 
it, it doesn't seem that, yes, they executed better than the Spurs did, and therefore they won by 20-something points and made all but two games total efforts. They shot 53% from the field in the finals. That is the highest, according to ESPN Stats and Info, of any team in the shot clock era. Any team. So shot did, clock era. Did they shoot well because they passed a lot and had open looks, or did they shoot well because they were kind of, you know, they were shooting well? And well, when the you first shoot quarter, well, that gives you an advantage. In the first quarter of game five, the Spurs offense was humming along as well as it had for the rest of the series, to my eye at least, but they just weren't making the shots. And so I think the beauty comes from the passing leading to the swish. I think great passes followed by a clang off the back of the rim is not going to parse as beautiful. But it seemed like um, the the Heat defense with doubling with a lot of uh, pressure on the ball was just leading to past open man to past open man to past open man. It was sort of a reaction to what the Heat were doing, and they were just not trapping as effectively, not forcing as many turnovers as they were last year or as in the opening couple games of the series. Um, But I think the beauty thing does, there is something to that because in the NBA and the playoffs specifically, if you don't win, you would, I think it's at least like pretty easy to make the other team look bad by, you know, fouling the, the guy who has a clear path to the basket. You don't often see layups in the playoffs. But the Spurs, it did seem like they had, you know, six men out there to the Heat's five. Like they just couldn't be caught and that there were just always guys open. And so it was not just the Spurs offense. It was the combination of the Spurs um, passing, but the Heat always looking like they were just chasing after the ball. The beauty is apparent on a play like the one that I think there were four or five passes that culminated in Boris Diaw throwing the ball behind his back to Tiago Splitter, who had just cut under the basket and caught it for an easy layup. I mean, that does make you go, wow, this is actual, that is beautiful to watch. That is beautiful execution. It is beautiful planning. It's beautiful anticipation and it's beautiful intuition. And those are things that I think Greg Popovich does deserve credit for teaching for designing plays that lead to those kinds of outcomes. And I think every basketball coach is trying to design plays that lead to beautiful outcomes. And I guess Popovich gets the credit because they are able to execute them. And is that part of this bigger picture, this sort of institutional approach to basketball that got tons of love last night from the owner to R.C. Buford, the general manager, to Popovich, to the kinds of players that they scout and sign as free agents and trade for and then develop? I mean, is there some sort of holistic thing that we should be lauding Greg Popovich and the Spurs for? Uh, Kevin Arnovitz makes the case that this is all about process over politics, hard work being the foundation for their success, that work environment matters, that a meritocracy matters. I think there's a lot more going on, too, that's market-specific and player-specific. But, I mean, does that all sort of ring true to you? Yeah, I think that the so having Duncan as the superstar and Duncan in his waning years is really important. So Duncan as the guy who sets the tone, also the guy who he I mean if he gets 24 points, he it's it's great, but he doesn't need 24 points. It's I a mean, toneless he, it's a rather toneless tone. Yeah. <laughs> Although everyone who knows him says he's a lovely guy with a dragon tattoo because he loves Dungeons and Dragons or a wizard tattoo, actually. Um, yeah, because a dragon tattoo would be too aggressive for Tim Duncan. But I wonder if 
I do think that there are many, many more players who would subjugate. When we talk about, you know, players being stats obsessed or players being egotistical, it usually means they want to score a lot. And I just think that there are a lot of players who would subjugate that, who on different teams, they know their role and maybe they're not the number one scorer and they're happy with that. Or players like, you know, Patty Mills or Green or these other three-point shooters who on every team they're on, all they'll do is, hey, give me an open shot and I'll hit it. They're unbelievably happy to do that. And I don't know if the Spurs shooters of that ilk are better than other shooters throughout the league who do that, although they do play good defense. So my general theory is that if you could prove to players that this egoless basketball will you know, get you into the finals, the vast majority would do it. The problem is that the Spurs have that track record and it's really easy to see that it will work for the Spurs. But if you're a guy who's just building a team out of nothing, you know, I don't think that the Bobcats can institute that and, you know, say, hey, we got a four-year plan and we're not even going to make the playoffs, but we're going to, you know, take your 24-point-a-game average and turn it into a 14-point-a-game average. Most players will say, well, since I'm not going to get to the playoffs, since I don't reasonably have a chance to win a championship. I get paid more if I score more. So that's why they don't buy in. So I guess as a general point, what the Spurs do is great. The reasons that other teams don't do it is it's not that easy, but I also think that only one or two teams can do it, can have that niche, can be the team that convinces players you will go very far in the playoffs by giving up your ego and by giving up your points per game. But it's not really about convincing players if you don't have the right players. You can convince, you know, the Bobcats roster to play to play in an egoless way. And but, but, they're but not going to go is Boris Diaw the right player? Before he got to the Spurs, was everyone saying that guy is the is a key to anything? It, Patty Mills was this undersized guy out of uh, St. Mary's. Like he wasn't sought after. Did they see something in him, and he'd be great on other teams, or is he, you know, a good guy in their system? I don't know about. I think that it's it's the system, and they could crap. Well, no, no, I think you've correctly identified the Spurs role players who fill their roles very well, but the three core guys, Ginobili, Parker, and Duncan, are the key ones. And the roster was kind of moribund, or, you know, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but they weren't going to win an NBA championship until they got Kawhi Leonard. And Leonard is somebody who the Spurs deserve a huge amount of credit for, um, you know, trading George Hill to get. He was the number 15 pick. And then for developing him once uh, he got there. But um, you just have to have those um, those top guys. And I think People say that the Spurs don't have stars, which is not true. The Spurs have a huge number of stars. What they have is parity between their stars. So they just don't have anyone who's much better than anyone else. Except for Tim Duncan in his prime and before him, David Robinson, when um, this all started. Right, this current iteration of the Spurs. But um, I think we can go way too far by saying that the Spurs have shown that this is a model for success. It is incredibly hard to put together a team like this with low draft picks. And, you know, the Spurs have done an incredible job of it, but it's not particularly replicable across the NBA. I mean, the Pistons were an outlier um, in in having a a lot of parity among their stars. But would you take the heat since, uh, you know, LeBron got there? Four years, four NBA finals with two titles? The Spurs' last four years certainly haven't been as successful as that. Well, it ends up becoming a referendum, too, on showmanship, on ego. You know, you would never have had a sound and light 
press conference, you know, with smoke guns shooting off when someone signs with the Spurs, even if LeBron James had signed with the Spurs. Well, that's because they just don't have sound and light in San Antonio. Good point. But it's also market specific. And I think it's also owner specific. You know, in San Antonio, maybe you don't have to rally the fan base the way you did in Miami after up and down years and where you don't have people in the marketing department thinking in terms of the need to parade these guys down the streets and put them in in convertibles and show them off and have them make a music video of their uh, of their of their arrival in town you know is that market specific or is this really simply about being able to win and that winning solves everything. No one was complaining that the Miami Heat were too flashy last year or after they won the NBA championship, after the Spurs came close and failed in game six. So I think this is largely a function of winning, but could you replicate a Spurs-type team, which seems to be everyone's desire now or the belief that it is replicable if you have the right GM and the right coach and the right players and the right scouting? Could you do that in New York or in Miami or in another city? Or is there really something to the idea that San Antonio is a smaller market? It is out of the the national conversation. It has succeeded because, or at least in part because, of having a low-energy, low-ego superstar like Tim Duncan leading the team for the last 15 years. Well, I also think the Spurs got really lucky. I mean, they got lucky to get David Robinson. They had one bad year, and there was Robinson. And then they got really lucky when they got Tim Duncan. And these are not just great players. These are durable big men who never left town. When else does that happen? And the and the answer is, well, I, you can't even count Alcindor because he went from the Alcindor to being Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But you, when you have a durable, great big man who stays in a city, that means championships. Except, Except if you're the Knicks and Patrick Ewing. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it does. And, and if they didn't have those two bad years, Popovich, maybe no one would ever buy into Popovich's system. Maybe they wouldn't have won that first championship that led them to win all these other championships. You know, who knows? Who knows? I mean, Popovich has won 50 <laughs> games every season that the NBA has played more than 50 games. One, yeah. one small point. And um, he's only actually contested 78 games, so that's impressive. <laughs> one, uh, one small point before we get back to Popovich and wrap things up. There's a lot of talk now, obviously, about what the Heat are going to do, what LeBron James is going to do. And again, I find more similarities to the Spurs here than differences. Ginobili, Parker, Duncan consistently have taken less money to stick together and to allow the Spurs to get these complementary players that allow them to succeed as a team. And it's just kind of the genius of the NBA owners. This is a collectively bargained, but... The fact that players are now seen as being bad and selfish if they don't voluntarily reduce their own salaries. And this is what's being, um, you know, it seems likely that this could happen again with the Heat. The Heat, you know, trio did this um, to put the big three together. You're kind of bashed if you don't win championships. And it seems like um, whether it's the Spurs model or whether it's the Heat model, the way to do that is, again, to voluntarily (laughs) reduce your own salary or else you're criticized for it. But the reality is the only one that's going to probably have to do that would be LeBron James. Um, Dwayne Wade is not a max player anymore. Chris Bosh might he not He could opt into his salary and just he take it. He could opt into his salary and take it. But if he decides to opt out and try to go somewhere <laughs> else, he's not getting <laughs> that kind of money. 
Think about the framing of that, right? What George Lakoff, the linguist, would call the frame. He could opt into his salary. <laughs> Some might call it get paid what's owed him and promised him. Right, you're, say, you're right. saying Dwayne Wade's a not a max player, and it's incumbent upon him to realize that and impose, and go somewhere else. impose that salary reduction on himself. And that's the, But that's what he's going to get criticized for if he does opt in, much like we had the conversation about Steve Nash and the money that he's owed and the reaction of Los Angeles fans to being given what he has contractually what his team has contractually agreed to pay him. And that's what you're going to get this offseason. That if Dwayne Wade decides I want my money, it's going to be, well, then he's consigned the heat to failure. So uh, Popovich, do we think he's uh, a jerk, a dick with the way that he he, he talks to the press? (laughs) No. That he answers those questions? No. I think the press doesn't even – I think the press has taken – to think of him as charming. And everyone likes him. Well, I know that uh, they've taken to think of him as charming. That doesn't mean that he's charming. But I don't I, I don't think the questions are ever any good. It's not like he dismisses good questions. And I don't think right? that his reactions are ever sort of hostile. They're not belligerent. They are... They're no, more, they are. In the, in the post-game press conferences, he can be... He can be a little Belittling. Bit he yeah. can be hostile. But yeah. how, why would you ask a guy, a team, who's up 3-1, who do you think the MVP would be at that point? You deserve to get next questioned with that one. But there's a way, I think, that you can not answer those questions and not be as belittling or impolite about it. You could be like just a reasonably uh, and nice half the human time, being. And half the time he does joke about it. He does, you know, he does make fun of the question, but he does it in a way that gets the rest of the room to laugh. He's honest. And we don't we value honesty? Don't we like having coaches who stand up there and smirk and smile and give us something more than the can? Well, you know, let's talk about who's the MVP after we actually win the series. We got a tough game tomorrow. The Heat and LeBron are really going to bring it. I mean, but would you rather a, have that? Middle, there is a middle way. I mean, I think Spolstra doesn't say anything that's any more content based, but he's he's not as uh, you know jerkish about it. And no, like you're right, what, what's happened is this like, is the what, this is the way that image ossifies. Like Tim Duncan complains on the court more than any player in the NBA, and yet he's known as the most mellow superstar in the league. It's just and and Popovich is known as just this kind of like crusty, lovable guy, but if he just came into the league and acted like that, then everyone would think he's the biggest dick in the in the NBA. Or or if he or if he wore a hooded sweatshirt while doing it. But this is the Manny Ramirez thing. Once someone offers you a when when your brand becomes this, you have free reign. And so I think every other coach, if somehow they were gifted the idea that oh yeah, you could be a jerk and we're going to laugh at it, every <laughs> other coach would be a jerk. It's true. Popovich got lucky, you know, it's or true. he crafted it himself. But man, they would all love to Popovich those questions too. All right, let's have a word from our sponsor this week, and that is Harry's, which is focused on providing a great shaving experience for a fraction of the price of their competitors. It's a clean product design, high quality blades, half the price of competitors. There's the convenience and ease of ordering online. Mike Pasca. Yes. Did you take the uh, Harry's challenge today? Not only did I take it, I invented it, I think. (laughs) So I shaved half of my face with conventional razor and a good conventional razor. I don't know how many blades were involved. You know, seven blade arms race. Yeah, lots of... And and I got, I'm going to say, a somewhat clean kind of close shave. And you're a hirsute fellow. <laughs> this is a demonstration. You have a thick beard. This is a demonstration uh, that's made for audio. Mike has a here, two o'clock shadow. Not a five here o'clock is shadow. here is the side of my face that I shave with the conventional razor. And here is the side of my face that I shaved with a Harry's razor. <laughs> 
Is that with a credit card? The way they did it with like those Joe Namath commercials in the in the sixties and seventies. No man, I, I'm going to send you. Face. I'm going to send you the photographs of me half shaven. And the thing is, I shaved with the conventional razor in about a half hour before I shaved with the Harry. So I did walk about eighteen city blocks with half a shaved face. <laughs> <laughs> People so, looked at me. So the your point, beard can grow in in fifteen minutes, Pascal. Yeah. So, so the point of this demonstration is that you're pleased with Harry's. Oh yeah, it's really nice. Um, you could go to harrys.com and use the Wait, promo please, code. I think, says it all. <laughs> go to harrys.com and use the promo code HANGUP to save $5 off your first purchase. They, can, they offer a custom engraving option. You can engrave your initials on the razor. I think Mike oh, Pesca deserves... the engraving was in your face. Yeah, the engraving on the razor. I wish I knew that. Damn. Damn. Pesca's got a little MP on his he cheek, does. on all his right. left cheek. Harrys.com, promo code HANGUP. With 37 goals in the first 11 games of the competition, this is the most scoreful. That's the word, right? Yeah. Scor- scorific. Goalful. Uh, uh, to the World Cup since 1958. There were only 19 goals for the first 11 games in South Africa. You should ask for your money back. I'm, I'm, you went to jail for just I did, 19, for 19 for goals. For 19 goals in 11 games. And there also have been no draws. So this is what... Uh, American uh, sports punditry has always wanted. More scoring, none of those damn ties. Do you like it now, America? I think America actually does like it. There's been less stupid, obvious soccer trolldom this time around, um, and it's been befitting. The I don't think it's because of the goals. I think it's because befitting. of the passage of time. <laughs> the trolldom will be... But I, just wrote a, but I just wrote an introduction about how it's because of the goals, so just go with that. Okay, I'll go with it, yeah. No, but you, you continue, continue. And not only just goals, but some really fantastic goals. I mean, the Dutch kicking Spain's ass five to one. The goal by Robin Van Persie was as beautiful a, a finish as you'll ever the see. The dolphin header. The, the dolphin header, yes. The Swiss uh, winning in the final final play of the game, basically, to put it in American terms, last play of the game. The, I mean, it, this has been, there's been some gorgeous soccer and some gorgeous scoring and some intense games, fast-paced games. Even the England-Italy snooze fest toward the end was really nice in the first half. I thought England was awful in the last 20 minutes, uncreative, unimaginative. You're losing by a goal. Do something. Try. Try something different. Try, please. They didn't look like they were trying. Um, We also learned who the best country in the world is, Switzerland or Ecuador. I thought that was useful this weekend. Well, that's one reason why there have been no ties, thanks to the Swiss in the final seconds. And I do mean seconds. I mean, they don't keep it really strict. So this was on, I think, Sunday. And I've watched some, at least some, of every World Cup game. And all of a few, including weird ones like uh, Ivory Coast and Japan in Spanish, because neither of those countries speak Spanish. But anyway, so uh, I worked it in, and I was at a playground with my kids, and then I saw there was a World Cup bar, or a bar, down in lower Manhattan. Uh, so we, we ducked inside, and I got a half-price Peroni as we watched the end of the game. And I'm explaining to my kids, look, who's going to win? Who's going to win? Look, I'm trying to explain the concept of a tie, or as they call it, a draw, and a draw's okay, and I'm getting them used to a draw. And like, you know, I'm drawing upon the excellent brochure how do you how to talk to your kids about draws it's you know it's a delicate conversation with children who always want to win or a loser and there undoing all the work i've done the swiss dude scores a goal with like maybe four seconds left if they were keeping a strict swiss timepiece on it that was amazing so stefan one thing that you had mentioned uh before the show 
is this idea of national myths and how they come up during the World Cup. Jurgen Klinsmann seems like he wants to create an American myth, this idea that the U.S. needs to develop a style of play that's somehow commensurate with the American spirit. And this is talked about in other countries, um, you know, the the Dutch uh, in Brilliant Orange, that book that it's discussed why they play the, the way they play, the they English. Play the way they played. The English with the the muddy pitches and the uh, you know the long balls and and stuff like that, but you think that this is all kind of ex post facto. I think it's a little bit ex post facto and more and more ex post facto because as as the as as time marches forward and as the soccer world basically congeals and as we've seen for the last 15, 20 years, the style of play is less distinct. I mean, you hear conversations about Brazil and this tournament that the Brazilians are now, the Brazilians are stalwart on defense. They don't rely so much on this notion of creativity and Samba, though, of course, there are players that embody those those gifts. So, you know, the English being plodding, not so true anymore. Younger English team trying to be more dynamic, even though toward the end of the game, I don't think they were. Um, the Italians, you know, for years were all about this this bulwark defensive style. The Dutch were about free-flowing total soccer in which anyone can play any position. Most of these things don't apply to the modern teams. I mean, there are individual... Spain would be the exception, right? Spain, I think, would be the exception that they have a, a, a distinct style, but is it a style that matches the national character? <laughs> I don't see that so much anymore. I think there is a merging of styles and to try to pin down a nation to try to say that a nation is X and their football reflects this national uh, personality is wrongheaded. And I think it's something that, that does come out of the European experience. So when we hear Jurgen Klinsmann saying we need to come up with something that's distinctly American, we are fast, but we are also strong. We want to push the game forward because this is the American way. I think that's kind of bullshit. See, I think that it's true, but... Is it coefficient of correlation? Is that what that stat is? So if if something is perfectly correlated, it's, you know, 1.0. If it's perfectly inversely correlated, it's negative one. So I do think that years ago, as I perceive it, there was a correlation. I don't know. Give it a number, 0.5, 0.5. Six And now the correlations may be 0.3.4. There are just some things. The Brazilians are going to play the beautiful game. They've changed a little bit based on the fact that their, you know, <laughs> their players are no longer named Socrates, but are named Fred. So I guess they've gotten a little less uh, and splashy. Hulk. And Hulk. Yeah, oh, Fred and Hulk. So, uh, yeah, these, I mean, they, there used to be guys that members of the Justice League would aspire to their names. Now, Fred. So, but, but you know, the Japanese are short. And so they're not going to play a game that has all these, you know, long crosses and headers in the box. The Germans are tall. Uh, they're the tallest team in the World Cup. So they are going to do that. The Germans are less German than they ever used to be, you know, the staunch Mannschaft. But they, and they have, uh, you know, Turkish players and Polish players and all this. But they still play a kind of German game. I think it really falls down when it comes to America's. And then I just mentioned the Swiss. <laughs> the Swiss's character and the Swiss's team are entirely at odds. They couldn't be more negatively correlated. The Swiss are like this crazy attacking group. And if you know anything about the Swiss, they're not like that. They don't attack. They're known for not attacking. But I think it really falls down when it comes to America because America is everything. And especially the American soccer team. Talk about melting pot. You could pick any style of play and say, yeah, that reflects America. Or yeah, that, this reflects America because America is everything. So searching for the style of play that is distinctly American seems to be the biggest fool's errand. I 
understand wanting to have a coherent team. And I think after the fact, and this happens with NFL teams where, when we've talked about this, you have to have an identity. You have to have an identity. Well, you know, sometimes fumbling and, you know, throwing interceptions is your identity. What they mean is you have to do something good, consistently, and replicable. And once you do that, then you're a good team. And then you could say it's their identity or style of play. But to go out and just try to find a style of play doesn't seem as smart as to find the ways to be good and then retroactively say, yeah, that's our style of play. There's something soccery about that, too. And then it, the next step is that... You, you, like as Brazil did with the 1950 loss, there was a piece in the New York Times on Sunday about the Uruguayan national mentality and this early success in the World Cup carrying over into the current iteration of the team. I, you know, I think a lot of this is how we want to think and write about sports, but soccer in particular. Baseball used to suffer from that a lot. We're a lot more quantitative and rational about baseball. There are fewer Elysian fields. Soccer, I think, still has a lot of Eduardo Galeano and beautiful game and sort of national character and national tragedy woven into it. Well, what do you think of the contention, the argument that Americans don't flop or dive as much as players in other countries? Sam Borden wrote about this in the New York Times recently, and this is kind of taken as a given. Um, but as I've been watching the team over the last few years, I feel like if that was true, it, it doesn't seem as true to me anymore. Josie Altador is a guy that strategically falls down a lot in my estimation, and that he's known, you know, his um, one of his better, more important qualities to the team is being able to win free kicks and advantageous positions for the team. So as somebody who's been watching American soccer develop, Stefan, do you think it's it's true that the U.S. has gotten more international in its embrace of the flop? I think Clint Dempsey takes a... Uh, a, a he's Tim Duncan-esque in his willingness to complain to the refs about anything and everything. But he'll also go for the well-timed exaggeration and dive, too. Yeah, I think there is something in American soccer that that, that does begin at the youth level, where where the theatricality is discouraged. And it's discouraged not only in the sort of deceptive don't flop way, but it's discouraged in the sort of creative Lionel Messi to be way where players are taught to sort of subjugate their individual talents toward the greater good to learn to pass more and get into open space versus to try to beat three defenders at once the way we saw Messi do on Sunday. Speaking of unbelievable goals, the, the image of Lionel Messi beating those four players yesterday and leaving two of them in a heap after they collided with each other like clowns because he the way he danced around them, um, you know, like some Keystone Cops thing was was emblematic of his greatness and also, you know, a way to to, to sort of. So Messi doesn't get around. Flop. Messi, Messi, yeah. Messi, Messi, I don't know. Does Messi flop much? He does I don't not. Know that he Messi does not. Flops. But he no, makes he the, the defense flop. Right. He gets tripped a lot. Legitimately. He does get tripped a lot. No, I think the United States doesn't flop. But, and the, everything that sports writers and us were lauding the Spurs for doing, you know, passing a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know we made the Duncan exception, but that's how we want our athletes to be and not take guys, take three guys one-on-one. -on -one. There's something terrible in America about taking three guys one-on-one. -on -one. But when you take three guys one-on-one -on -one and it works, it's not only fantastic, it's really advantageous to the team. Maybe there's something about soccer. Okay. 
Okay, I'm just working this out of my head. But in basketball, which is a more deterministic sport, I mean, there are more, uh, who wins is more reflective of the better team. It's much more higher scoring. There's less of a reason to take three guys one-on-one. On any given possession, you'd probably be better passing it three times to get to the open man. But in soccer, where only two goals are scored a game, and that could be, you know, impossible to overcome, maybe it's smarter to take three guys one-on-one. Because even if the odds are only 10% that it will succeed, that 10% will result in a much higher scoring chances chance than a bunch of good passes. I don't know if that's true. Maybe that is true. Maybe, maybe that goes against the American style. And I know Michael Bradley, is, who's one of the best players, is definitely indicative of what people think of the American style of play. Like, like a Marine, you know? Like a, a, a sergeant in the Marines. It's not maybe n- indicative of what the American uh, image is in the world, but the, uh, the image of the American soccer player is in fact that. But guess what? If we had someone like Lionel Messi that could dribble the pants off of five guys and then put the ball in the, the corner of the guy, net. The number of guys is increasing every time. And the, Actually, I just, called up, I just called up the picture. Deadspin ran the picture of Messi taking the shot against Bosnia yesterday on which he scored off the post. And Herzegovina. And Oh, I'm sorry. I left out Herzegovina. I'm sorry, Herzegovina. There are two guys on the ground, the two that collided with each other, two defenders two yards away from him, one standing three yards to, to the side and behind him, and the goalie diving futilely to his right. It's a fantastic photo. That was one of the most amazing goals where the ball didn't really go more than an inch above the ground. Usually amazing goals are aerials. All right, let's uh, move on to our last topic. And... Uh... Mike Pesca will be stepping away for a moment, but we'll be back for After Balls. Um, Last week in Oakland, the Ed O'Bannon case finally reached a courtroom after nearly five years. U.S. District Court Judge Claudia Wilkin is hearing the class action antitrust lawsuit, the outcome of which could change the structure and the identity of college sports. Joining us from Oakland to discuss the O'Bannon case is Steve Berkowitz, who's been covering it for USA Today. Hello, Steve. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Um, And you've been writing great coverage, previews, and then day-to-day recaps. So I feel very informed. But for listeners out there who have not had the privilege of reading the Berkowitz coverage, can you um, just give a quick kind of capsule summary about what is at issue in this case? Yeah, I mean, basically what it comes down to is whether or not the harm that is done to men's basketball uh, and football players in major college sports, whether the harm done to them by the restrictions the NCAA has on what athletes can receive as compensation is greater than sort of the good that is done for college sports by the NCAA's limits in terms of, uh, as the NCAA has has cast it, in terms of enhancing competition, uh, in terms of preserving amateurism and the connection of amateurism to uh, the sports popularity. Uh, the NCAA has also said that it enhances the uh, integration of education and athletics because if the athlete, if football and basketball players are being paid, uh, they are sort of more professionalized and less inclined toward of deal with anything academically. And the plaintiffs uh, shot holes in a lot of those arguments last week. O'Bannon testified. Uh, Roger Knoll, an economist at Stanford, testified for a really long time. The, the scope, as you, lined, as you outlined it, Steve, is pretty limited. But the bigger picture is this floodgate notion that this is going to forever change college sports, that it will open a bigger door toward athletes getting paid more than just what they might be able to negotiate with a video game company or with a, a, a shoe company. How 
how is that sort of in what you're seeing in the courtroom? How is that sort of playing out? The the fear of what's bigger here. Well, I think there's a, there's fear on both ends. I mean, if we're from the colleges, the biggest fear is that having to pay football and men's basketball players any sizable percentage of the bro- of the live broadcast revenue, which is what is at issue, and in, in for the most part here that's going to be a really significant problem for them financially. So, you know, for a lot of schools, that's probably true. Uh, And that would alter a lot of things in college athletics potentially. But some of those other effects are really, you know, sort of immaterial to the case uh, as far as the, the judge is concerned. And she has said as much that she doesn't treat the marketplaces for other sports to be the same marketplace for the football and men's basketball players. So I think that's the big fear for colleges is the prospect of of having to be in a position to share a lot of revenue with just football and men's basketball players. And I think there's concern on the part of the colleges that this would potentially later on open them up to Title IX questions, although that's hard to know how that would turn out. But I think there's, there's definitely sort of this parade of terribles that uh, the NCAA is concerned about. Yeah, Pandora's box. No question. So I learned from uh, reading your coverage, from Michael McCann's coverage in Sports Illustrated, that the NCAA could legally have a system that harms the players. Could you explain why that would be legal? Yeah, I mean, under antitrust law, you can have a system that on its face appears to be anti-competitive as long as, in this case, the NCAA can make a case that its justifications, which would presumably enhance competition, um, as long as those justifications uh, in the mind of the judge outweigh the harm that's being done to the athletes. Or alternatively, you know, can the athletes show that there are less restrictive alternatives that accomplish the same goals that the NCAA uh, says it wants to accomplish. So if the judge says the NCAA's goals are legitimate and backable, if the, if the plaintiffs, if the players can show that there are less restrictive alternatives that would allow the NCAA to accomplish the same goals, the judge could find in the plaintiffs, and in this case, the players' favor. It sounds like the judge has not sort of bought a lot of the NCAA's arguments, and that could just be that she is being a good judge, the way Supreme Court justices question but don't tip off which direction they're heading. But from watching the, the trial from outside, it's hard not to think about the ramifications of a pro-O'Bannon decision, of an O'Bannon victory here. And the thing that's really struck me is that an O'Bannon victory doesn't guarantee that every basketball and football player is going to become rich or is going to be paid in on a professional level. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're not talking about tens of thousands of dollars necessarily. But what we're probably looking at is a system where players who have an intrinsic market value in their performance and their personalities get rewarded in a way that the market deems fair. That's about the size of it. I mean, I think, you know, there, I think there is some level on which there would be kind of a leveling effect. Uh, there's been discussion by the lawyers representing the players of group licensing, which is sort of, you know, you, the, the players collectively assign their rights to the conference or, right. or, or a, a sort of a players association negotiates on behalf of the players with various conferences uh, for them to get certain amounts of money. And then I suppose the schools potentially would be able to divvy those amounts up as they see fit. But yes, at its most basic level, what the plaintiffs are seeking to do is create an open marketplace. So if uh, a guy like Johnny Manziel has the wherewithal and the market power to make money, then he can do that. And uh, if the starting tight end at the University of Alabama 
who might, you know, in the broader scheme, not have a lot of market value. But if there's a car dealership in Tuscaloosa that thinks that there's value for him, then they can do that. <laughs> there already um, is one. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, it's a pretty wide scope. So one thing that I'll look forward to hearing the NCAA try to argue is this idea that amateurism is essential for creating competitive balance in college sports. You would argue that the existence of the SEC, you know, dominance in college football, you know, if if the players were getting paid, it's hard to see how the SEC could be any more dominant. Um, Andy Schwartz, who has done work consulting for the uh, O'Bannon side, he wrote for Slate that it actually doesn't um, ensure competitive balance. It just means that when Louisiana State competes with Oklahoma State, everyone pays the ball state rate, which I thought was an elegant uh, way to put it. Uh, at the moment, that's the case. Uh, that you know wouldn't be the case in the future. And and the the arguments back and forth on competitive balance just go. You know, you can go around and around and around. I mean, to every argument, there's a counter, and some of them are actually reasonably counterintuitive when you get at it. I mean, the idea that. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the limits allow uh, promote competition because more schools can become Division One schools because more schools can afford to do it because you're not paying the players. Well, the counter to that is that well, yeah, but by having more schools involved, you create an imbalance in competition because you have a lot of schools at the bottom end financially of Division One who are much less competitive than other schools. So, I mean, you know, you, there are actually some reasonably counterintuitive arguments that get made back and forth over the issue of competitive balance. And before the trial began, the judge was asking each side to sort of quantify in statistics in ways that they hadn't previously to try to somehow quantify the competitive balance issue. So I think the judge is looking for uh, whatever sort of evidence the sides can put in on this. And it's a very complex and back and forth kind of issue. That's a, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a, there are a lot of arguments that can be made both ways on this. What's also complex is where this fits into the broader picture. You have the Kane coulter unionization case at Northwestern. There is a, a challenge to the NCAA's cap on athletic scholarships, limiting uh, uh, payments to tuition room board books and fees, saying that that's a violation of antitrust law. The thing that's really struck me is this, the fear feels overblown. And look, the NCA obviously is in the business of protecting its interests and protecting the distribution disbursement of its revenue. I mean, this system has been in place since the mid-1980s with the Supreme Court's decision on television broadcasts, which really created the NCAA's approach to modern football and basketball. So I guess my question here is, if the NCAA is so concerned about preserving the status quo, and yet the status quo is under threat from multiple flanks, why didn't they try to settle here? Do you have a sense in your reporting of why we didn't get one the way we got one with the EA lawsuit? Uh, because the NCAA views this case, it's a matter of principle. I mean, the, the EA, the, the video games related stuff was a matter of money. The EA claims, the video game claims against EA the collegiate licensing company against the NCAA were monetary damages claims. They were statutory damages claims. It was a money problem. Right. Let's be clear. There's no monetary monetary damages claim in this case. That you're right. That's where I was going with it. I mean, the plaintiffs in this instance chose not. They wanted to pursue a huge damages claim for past alleged misuse of name, image, and likeness in television and so forth, and the judge wouldn't give them that. They had the opportunity to pursue individual damage claims on behalf of the named plaintiffs in the case, which would have been an interesting exercise to see what a guy who just finished playing 
football at Vanderbilt would have been entitled to, but that would have involved a jury trial. And so at the last minute, the plaintiff said, we don't want to pursue individual damages for these guys. That doesn't mean that they won't try to do it later on or some other venue if they win, but for this group, they won't. So they kept it confined to a judge. And so it becomes very difficult to compromise on what is viewed as a matter of principle. Um, I suppose the NCAA could say to the plaintiffs, okay, we're going to put up this huge vat of money and we'll figure out a way to distribute it and keep everybody happy. But, you know, that's sort of not what the plaintiffs is sort of where they've planted their flag. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to compromise on a matter of principle. Uh, and from the NCAA's perspective, it's very difficult to make a compromise that would offer up a set of NCAA rules changes because, you know, the lawyers and the executives in the NCAA don't make the rules. The schools make the rules. So it's a tough, I mean, you know, you can always figure a way to compromise, but this is, it will require a lot of creativity and uh, a lot of time and effort, and I think so far everybody's position is, let's see what happens with this judge, and if we don't like this outcome, we'll appeal it to the next, to the next level. Um, Steve, so to wrap this up in the preview uh, week two of this case, the NCAA is going to be presenting its case. And I've gotten the sense over the last couple of years that his media opinion, his popular opinion, has gone against the NCAA on questions of amateurism, on college athletes' pay, that a lot of athletic directors, a lot of officials in the NCAA believe that they're on the right side of the issue, but they've just done a really bad job of presenting the case, that it's just an issue of bad public relations. So do you have a sense of how they're going to alter their pitch here or whether it's possible for them to argue that these guys don't deserve any money and have any kind of widespread, broad popular support for saying that? No, I think what they're going to attempt to do is to, is to make the these with, as they call them, pro-competitive justifications. I mean, they're going to talk about how the current system enables college athletics, as you currently know it, to exist. And that if you started paying, essentially, the men's basketball and the football players, that it would become less popular uh, with the public. And I think that's sort of the case that they're going to try to stick to. I mean, I'm not sure what other case they have or what other case within the, the construct of an antitrust argument they're going to be able to make. Um, I mean, there are a number of things, as you point out, that I think the NCAA and schools have not done a great job of pointing out in terms of some of the other benefits available to athletes. But, you know, in, in the context of this case, I think, you know, they have to roll with what they've got here. All right, Steve, thanks very much. You've got to get to court. Get over there. Thank you. Steve Berkowitz has been covering the O'Bannon case for USA Today. All right, time for After Balls and one of the more exciting World Cup innovations this time around. You've got your goal te- line technology. Hey, we can take or leave Major that. Major League Soccer has been doing this. The, uh, the vanishing spray. The ref uh, puts it around the little semicircle around the ball for the free kick and then sticks the, uh, the dudes in the wall behind the other line of vanishing spray. It was invented by someone. Everything's invented by someone or someone's. And the, the person who invented it, allegedly, was a Brazilian named Heine Aleman. Got to honor that guy. Don't use that stuff in lieu of Harry's. Please, don't. Mike, what's your Aleman? So I was reading in Foreign Policy magazine, not a place you'd expect, perhaps, to read about soccer, but my friend Kevin Blyer, who's this longtime writer for The Daily Show, not a guy you'd expect to write about soccer in foreign policy, but he raises a good point. And he was writing about the game that will have uh, been played by the time you hear this, Nigeria versus Iran. 
And one of the betting sites I went to said, on paper, this match does not stand out. Maybe you don't think about Iran and Nigeria. But there's a couple interesting things about those countries. One, it could be called the oil bowl. These are two of the most uh, high, highest oil-producing countries in the world. They're no Saudi Arabia and Russia or Canada, but they're up there. And then you have the fact that these are two of the most corrupt countries in the world. And this is what Kevin was pointing out in his piece. And I started looking at the corruption index or the corruption perceptions index. And yeah, uh, at the top of the least corrupt country scores, a lot of countries you'd figure would be there. A lot of uh, uh, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, New Zealand, Finland, Sweden, Norway. These are the five least corrupt countries. Singapore's up there. Switzerland's up there. And then when Switzerland hits, which I think probably outperforms how it should when you think about the number of people and, you know, what we perceive, how popular we perceive soccer to be, it does seem that there seems to be a bit of a correlation between being not corrupt and being good at soccer, football. Because after Switzerland, you have the Netherlands. And after Netherlands, you have Australia. And they're not great, but I think they outperform where they're supposed to be in football. Canada, you can't, it's really the snowy countries. You can't really count. Canada, Luxembourg, and then Germany, Iceland, and the United Kingdom. So already in the top four, and then Barbados and Belgium. And Belgium's one of the, you know, pre-match, I saw them as like the eighth favorite to win the World Cup. They have an extremely high ranking. So they're in the top 15 countries. We've already named, you know, four World Cup favorites or semi-favorites. And even in countries like Spain, which you figure it has a very bad economy and maybe not great politics, they're the 40th best country in terms of corruption. So that's pretty good. But then when you look at the bottom of the list, so you have a lot of ridiculous war-torn countries. Oh, yeah, and I also wanted to point out that Uruguay was 19th, tied with the United States in terms of not being corrupt. So that's pretty good. I mean, I think that that is... Why is Uruguay an outlier in terms of soccer success? Sure, they're in an area where everyone loves soccer, but they don't have a ton of people to draw from. And yes, I mean, they might not even make the elimination round. 538 says that they have a, they're probably going to get knocked out. But 538 also says Spain's probably going to not make the elimination round. I just can't see that happening. Anyway, I'm positing that a lack of corruption in general tends to correlate with more soccer success. There's probably something else going on there, like more resources and less corrupt countries probably have better funding for sports and better nutrition overall. You know, they're they're the have countries. They're more of the, um, you know, if you want to talk about the north-south divide. But even among those groups, the worst, the more corrupt you are, I think the worse you do in soccer and the less corrupt you are, possibly the better you do in soccer. So that is my that is my prescription for the United States. Currently 19th in corruption. If we get less corrupt, or at least if the perception of the United States gets less corrupt, I think our soccer is going to increase as well. Uh, Stefan, what is your alaman? Well, last year, Sports Illustrated soccer writer Grant Waldonde Tan Fedora tweeted a picture of himself standing fieldside holding a mic and wrote this, Dent McSkimming reporting on the scene from World Cup 1950. The reference was to the only American reporter present for what was pretty much the biggest upset in the tournament's history. United States won, England nil in Belo Horizonte, Brazil on June 29, 1950. In addition to having a name out of a Simpsons parody of Anchorman, McSkimming was the rare reporter who championed soccer in the early and mid-20th century. He started working for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch after World War I and wrote for the paper into the 1960s. 
In those decades, St. Louis was one of the few places where soccer was played a lot and for America played well. McSkimming would watch games from the corner of the stands, he said, because he couldn't stand listening to the other reporters talk over the game about politics or baseball. According to a 1997 story in the Post-Dispatch, McSkimming was upset that the paper wouldn't send him to cover the 1950 U.S. World Cup team, which included five players from St. Louis. So he paid his own way and went to Brazil. That story is all over accounts of the U.S.'s upset win over England. The just-published Mammoth Book of the World Cup says that McSkimming reported back the exciting news of the U.S. victory with great pride. A community and newspaper in Roanoke, Virginia, wrote in 2010 that after the game, McSkimming pushed through the crowd and found a phone, called his editor. He had to be the first reporter to get the news of this miracle into print. He needn't have worried. The next morning, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was not just the first paper to break the news. It turned out to be the only U.S. paper to do so. The 2005 movie The Game of Their Lives features McSkimming, played by Patrick Stewart, narrating the story of the game. And I have a feeling that that Roanoke writer took the account from the movie. What I can't figure out, though, is how much Dent McSkimming actually filed from Brazil. On the day after the game, the Post-Dispatch printed a wire service account, not a story by McSkimming. The paper wasn't alone. The New York Times ran an AP story, which got the name of the goal scorer wrong, and follow-up wire stories the next two days. The 1996 book, The Game of Their Lives by Jeffrey Douglas, mentions McSkimming just once to retell the story of how he paid his own way to get to Brazil and doesn't quote or cite anything thing that he wrote. In his 2010 book, Soccer Stories, longtime soccer writer, researcher, and PR guy named Don Rosolo writes that McSkimming was taking in the game as a tourist. Sports Illustrated senior writer Alexander Wolf told me that in researching his 2010 feature about the tragic story of Haitian immigrant Joe Gaitchens, who scored the U.S. goal, he didn't find anything even remotely contemporaneous that McSkimming wrote. So did McSkimming file or didn't he? That 1997 Post-Dispatch piece said that on the first Saturday in May of 1950, McSkimming won the sports department's Kentucky Derby pool. He picked middle ground, worked half of his shift, left for his lunch break and, quote, didn't return for several years. It doesn't mention any stories either, all of which makes me think that McSkimming blew off the paper after he had to go to Brazil on his own dime and didn't file a word. But that seems a little weird, not just because it would have been a huge scoop, but also because McSkimming was inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame in 1951. In any case, this is solvable. I just couldn't solve it in time for this afterball. Dent McSkimming died in 1976 at age 79, so we can't ask him. The Post-Dispatch online archives only go back to 1988. I've emailed the paper, waiting for an answer. Keith Shildroth, the former Post-Dispatch staffer who wrote that short piece on McSkimming, McSkipping Town to go to Brazil, told me that McSkimming was a respected pro, versatile reporter, popular with readers. He's checking to see what Dent McSkimming may have filed from Brazil. I will update. I also just like saying Dent McSkimming. Uh, can we retroactively rename the afterballs McSkimmings? <laughs> I think you just do McSkimmings for the rest of the World Cup. Josh, what's your Aleman? So it's that time of year, Stefan. The bats are coming out. The oversized gloves have emerged from, uh, from the attic. It's softball season. So I was looking up uh, the latest in softball bat technology, got these ginormous things with their ginormous barrels. But they're actually rules. The Amateur Softball Association does not let any uh, enormous club through. There have to be standards. There have to be rules. There can only be 
certain exit velocities of the ball allowed. It's for safety reasons. Um, so I found this old lawsuit from 2006. So there's an issue with, um, you know, a company will put out a bat and it'll be this awesome bat. Everybody will want the bat. And then the amateur softball association will say, you can't use that bat. So what is a man to do? What is a woman to do? What you do is you relabel the bat, you roll the bat, you put some new paint on it, and voila, you've got a, a faux-approved softball bat. So there were these two guys, uh, Michael Rogers and Troy Waterman, the Amateur Softball Association of America, and Rawling Sporting Goods Company uh, sued these gentlemen for basically relabeling bats and making them seem legal and compliant when they were not. Some of the background facts in this case the bats sold by the defendants exceed the ASA's performance standards. These are some hot bats, Stefan. They've been altered to impermissibly bear one or more of the ASA marks, that crucial ASA sticker. Consumers and players expect that softball bats containing one or more of the ASA marks and one or more of the Rawlings marks would perform at the level of other bats containing those same marks. Instead, the bats were way more awesome. And we can we just cannot have that. So uh, the Amateur Softball Association was awarded by the U.S. District Court for Western Oklahoma $100,000 in damages and attorney's fees totaling uh, $12,000 against the defendants. And this is in their press release characterized as the first two defendants in the association's ongoing attempts to rid the game of softball of illegal equipment, including painting and other techniques used to alter bats. And they didn't just get the money. They also got the names and addresses of all customers, as well as suppliers of goods and services who enabled the defendants to perform these heinous, heinous acts. I just added the word heinous. They didn't, they didn't include the word heinous. Um, and the ASA said, our work is far from over, blah, blah, blah. This was many years ago. So just to make sure that you're not using an, a non-approved bat on your you know, company softball game and any important softball outing this summer, I've got the uh, ASA non-approved bat list. I've got this printed out. And there are some, some ones that you should be aware of. In color. There's the Bass Quake. Do not use the Bass Quake. That is not on the approved bat list. There's the Easton SCX-22 Synergy 2, the Mikan MSF Freak. There is the Nakona Tomahawk. There is the Worth X-Wick X-Wicked. That's slow pitch only, band. Uh, but my favorite by far, I'm actually going to get Stefan to read this one. Read the uh, middle row top one. What, that, that's a band bat. Do not use this bat. Do not use the Combat VIRSP3 Lady Virus. Do not, I repeat, <laughs> use the Lady Virus. There is a bat that you are not allowed to use by the Amateur Softball Association sanctioned competition, and it is called the Lady Virus. I repeat, <laughs> it is called the Lady Virus. Got a little slightly different pronunciation, aren't with the Lady Virus? You went with the Lady Virus. The Lady Virus. Lady Virus. Lady Virus. All right, we love your feedback when we talk about today. That would be a great today. name for a rapper. It would be, uh, but not for an approved softball bat. Uh, you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes at iTunes.com slash slate podcast. And please give us a rating. Give us a comment. It'll be helpful. Uh, become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Thanks for listening. It is 
Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.